Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere, and then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Hello and welcome to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast, brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts. Making a garden that looks good for a few short weeks in summer, when the sun is shining and it's a joy to be outside, is relatively easy. But making a garden that looks good and is an enjoyable place to spend time all year round is much more of a challenge. And that challenge is made even harder in a small garden, where finding space for all the summer flowering plants we love is hard enough, let alone fitting in plants for winter interest. Hello, I'm Catherine Mansley, digital editor at Gardener's World magazine, and I'm joined by plantsman, garden designer and Gardener's World presenter Nick Bailey to get his tips for creating a garden that looks good all year round, no matter what size your space. Nick, my first question is it even possible to create year-round interest in a small garden? I reckon it's possible to create year-round interest in a pot. So, yes, I reckon it is. I reckon it is with the right the right palette of plants, a sort of carefully composed set of plants that I tend to sort of turn them as 365-day plants, um, you know, the ideal species to use in that kind of space. So they're always doing something interesting. So even if it's not flower, whether they've got a berry or a stem or something else, so it's those real kind of multifunctional plants that, that are adding interest potentially in every season and so they're you know they've got to earn their earn their place does year-round interest have to mean including lots of big heavy evergreen shrubs I would hope not and I think that's a, a trap people fall into particularly particularly in the UK and they also often tend to be those heavy inky evergreens which can just feel so depressing in the winter um, so things like area botra um, which is the loquat of course or uh, yew or taxis it's all very very dark but actually there are i mean you can go to the opposite extreme and something like choice tonata sundance which is truly yellow or i confess i find that actually slightly offensive in winter it's like a bit too much 
But I think there's a whole series of kind of in-between plants that can work brilliantly. So something like Pittosporum tenuifolium is evergreen, but it's in that much, much paler kind of limey green. So it's got a, a light freshness to it. It's got a slight gloss to the to the leaf. And so it's something I use again and again. There's another small garden I'm doing in North London at the moment, and the main structural plants are, are Pittosporums. They're going against a sort of, uh, I guess it's like a blue-gray blue-gray fence, but it's it just adds that that vibrance and you move away from from heaviness. And there's also other good ever-coloured plants that I think are, are seriously worth worth considering. Of course, there's all these new hookahs that have arrived from the from the US over the last kind of ten years or so. And something I regularly say in my in my talks is that uh, you know a lot of hookahs look like a, a wet dog after a long walk in the middle of winter. You know, kind of wet and slumped in the corner. Whereas this this particular cultivar, peach flambe, which is a, a peachy sort of pushing through to gingery red foliage actually keeps its leaves elevated and looks great through the winter. So I think if you've got lighter coloured shrubs, things like those. And then there's also ever-coloured shrubs that are sort of multi-tonal. So something like Hebe Heartbreaker is fantastic little domed Hebe. It can work brilliantly in a in a container, could be a centrepiece or, or whatever. And it has basically kind of pink, a sort of a muted creamy tone and green in its in its leaves. And actually the majority of the colour is pink. And so it can look great year round. And a, a tip I often sort of give to people if you're gardening in a really small space or you you can only have pots is to have a, a larger terracotta pot and then in the middle of that plunge a plastic pot with your key structural shrub. So that might be your hebe, it might be a pittosporum. And then backfill the whole pot. So what that gives you then is a is a ring of, of compost, which of course the shrub roots can't go into and they're not going to be disturbed. But you can then replant the outside edge of that a couple of times couple of times a year. But of course I'm sure I'm going to go on to chat about lots of things that flower nonstop as well. But that's just another way you can you can do it to give you that sort of flexibility and longevity. Oh, what a great idea. And what would be some of the, the plants that you would include in a pot for winter interest? There's lots of classics that people always sort of go for as standard. So cyclamen, of course, is a, is a great, fairly, fairly reliable, as long as you've, um, you're on the case with uh, vine weevil protection. Uh, same goes for hookahs, of course, as well. I remember with a backpack blower blowing across a garden in London years ago, blowing across this area of hookahs. There's six or seven of them. Uh, and as I blew across the area, they all simultaneously levitated and drifted off like UFOs, which was basically because all of their roots had been uh, had been chomped away by the vine weevils. There's a few, if you've got a relatively protected garden, there are some surprising things that will keep going through uh, all the way through winter. So for example, there's a, a Namisha, which I absolutely love, which if you buy it at the garden centre, the label will tell you it's an, it's an annual. And I promise you, it's absolutely not an annual at all. It will just keep going. And this particular one is called Namisha confetti. So it's got a, a pink and white flower. And if you've got a garden that basically doesn't drop much below minus one, minus two, or you can put it against a warm wall and, you know, it's extraordinary what a difference growing against a wall, particularly a south-facing wall, can make in terms of the heat retention. And so go for that. And then something like the uh, the diacea will do incredibly well for you. As well, oh, I really love not the biennial wallflowers that most people grow, but the uh, the sort of short-term perennial wallflowers. And so the it's perhaps a bit of a cliche now, but bowls mauve is a is a fantastic thing that sort of flowers prolifically with that lovely sort of mauvey tone for three or four years, and then drops dead. 
but it's very easy to propagate from. So you can do short cuttings in about its third third year. And what's nice is a lot more breeding work is going on with that with that set of erysimums of the perennial wallflowers. So there's a lovely apricot form now, which will go all the way through. Uh, and there's a lovely form called winter orchid, which um, slightly a question of taste. I like it, but it's a little bit challenging. So it's it's simultaneously sort of peachy ginger, some of the flowers, and also mauve purple. And so it's quite the quite the colour contrast, but it sort of genuinely keeps pumping out flowers kind of through the season. So they're a great thing to, you know, edge a pot with or just keep the keep the colour rolling. And you mentioned, obviously, the hardiness of plants and being able to put things against a wall to give them a bit of protection. Do plants for winter interest need kind of different types of care to plants that would flower in the summer? You know, are you, are you still feeding when they're flowering? Do those rules apply? Yeah, I mean, if a plant is continually productive, if I can cite my real star for non-stop, non-stop flowering. So this is an extraordinary rose called Bengal crimson. And it literally flowers 365 days of the year. And I'm not talking about some of the sort of English roses or hybrid teas that might have a little, you know, frozen specimen hanging on in December. It truly does does flower. And I first grew it at the Physic Garden. I've introduced it in Norfolk, in Northamptonshire, also in Sussex. And there's great specimens of it growing at Great Dixter. And it just keeps going. It's never out of bloom. But of course, roses are always cited as, as gross feeders. And I've got one in a, uh, in a container, which I've moved from uh, property to property. And so they tend to burn through some of those, those trace nutrients. So you can, you know, you can feed with, with NPK or nitrogen, uh, potassium phosphate. But actually, it's those other weird things. So like boron and molybdenum and copper. And so it's seriously worth getting both slow-release feeds and liquid feeds that have those trace elements. And that will you know, ensure that those, those winter flowering things that run all the way through can keep doing what they're, what they're doing throughout the year. So similarly with Sasanqua camellias, I think, there, I have to say, and about the only plant I dislike in the world is Camellia japonica. I think they're fine as an evergreen shrub, but as soon as they come into flower, I've never seen one that's looking good. There's always some flowers that are rotting, always some flowers that have been pelted with hail, and so it just never has a moment of perfection unless you're unless you're growing them in a glass house. However, the Sasanqua camellias, which of course start flowering in about November time. Uh, a smaller flower would get less damaged. So they're a really good thing, again, to have in a quite small space. They're a light open shrub. You can also sort of grow them flat against a wall. But similarly, because they're flowering at the latter end of the, the year, you would want to ensure that your sort of feed program is running at least up to that, that point to keep them going. And obviously, they're a, a plant that prefers a slightly more ericaceous growing environment. So you don't want to tweak what you, you put in in relation to that. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere, and then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. When you're adding plants for winter interest to your garden, in winter, obviously, you're spending a lot less time outdoors. You're mostly going to see these plants from indoors. How does that change where you would position these plants in your garden? So something I I tend to try and 
advocate is this idea of continuity in a garden. And so if you can layer your view, what I always say is, is a lovely thing to do is your main views in the garden. If you can have a, a window box or a planter that sat directly on your windowsill that has a color or a, a texture that you then repeat in the distant border you see beyond, suddenly the two things are kind of pulled together. They have a relationship. And so, I don't know, let's let's say it's a yellow flowered, early blooming primula that's a lovely, you know, lovely pale yellow in the foreground, then in the distance, I'd want to play something that picks up that color. So there's that fabulous coronilla that flowers all the way all the way through the winter. So it's coronilla valentina subspecies glauca citrina. I'm sorry, it's a dreadfully long name. But if you just look up coronilla citrina, it will, it will come up. But it's a lovely thing. It's a sort of globose. It's got a slightly glaucous leaf, and then it's got a, a two-tone, two sort of lighter and darker yellow pea flower. And it comes into flower in early autumn, and then it blooms all the way through till April the next year, kind of as if it's summer. And so it's a lovely, lovely thing. So I would position that or whatever your plant of choice is so you get a view of it through your window box. And it has that, you know, the two things are are linked together. And I have a confession to make. I have very little winter interest in my garden. Uh, And part of the reason for that is because I forget all about winter as soon as spring has arrived and I'm just focused on summer. And so then it's not until winter comes round again that I wish I had more winter interest in my garden. And then at that point, the ground's really wet and it's cold and I don't want to go outside. What's the answer? Do I need to brave the cold and go out and be planting in the middle of winter or should I be planning for winter in spring and planting then? Oh, I mean, I think uh, probably an easy win with that is, you know, as it as it hits November, first, first weekend of November, get down to the garden centre and see what's in flower. And then if you do that idea of kind of revisiting the garden centre each month through through the winter, you can get the best of what's going on. And there are things that, you know, genuinely look great. There's, there's all the sort of cliches that people fall into. And, you know, winter pansies are one of those for me that they have their moments of looking good, but actually they have these huge rest periods. They're not really reliable, reliable color at all. But there are other things. For example, there's a whole series of South African heathers, which uh, which people don't tend to grow particularly commonly, but they're so useful. There's one called Gracilis, which is quite um, it's quite upright. It has a sort of a magenta pink globose bell, but it appears on mass really that the whole whole plant just reads as as colour, and so that's a lovely way of adding a sort of a light texture and a really kind of vibrant colour to the to the back end of the season. But there's also plants as well that again, if you've got a slightly protected garden that doesn't drop below you know minus three four, then something I recently cited on on Gardeners World TV is is bacopa. And there are now all sorts of forms of that kind of heading towards uh, uh, blue tones, uh, mauve tones and white. And that will just keep keep going if you've got it in a slightly protected environment. Again, it's a thing that gets sold as an annual. Um, but in truth, it's perennial. And if you're just even vaguely warm, it will keep going through the winter. And you mentioned that trick of going to the garden centre several times through the winter. And, and in fact, people often recommend and you've recommended as well going to the garden center several times through the year to to look at what's in flower and then you can add interest to your garden throughout the year but in a small garden how do you ensure that you don't end up then with just a really bitty with you know one little snowdrop in flower in january and one little crocus in flower in february how how do you avoid that bittiness i think it's probably part of that initial initial planning so obviously getting to getting to know your garden but i think it's worth pulling together 
I guess guess what most designers would just call a, a mood board. And so to set up a, a theme or an idea, I mean, most most people already have a, an idea of the colour palette that they want. And in actual fact, the most uh, the most common thing I'm asked not to put into a garden. So I always sort of say to clients, is there any particular plant or colours you're not into? And uh, can you guess? Yellow. Yellow or orange. orange. Orange is the one. So, you know, I promise my clients faithfully that they're definitely not going to have orange in the garden. I mean, I put it in, but I rebrand it as, uh, as apricot or peach. Terracotta. And then it's, another, <laughs> um, it's a whole other, whole other thing. I think the way to approach that really is to have, after your initial observation and sort of planning of the garden, is to have a very loose mood board. So say, right, this is the, the sort of colour palette on I, I'm going to sort of aim for. And actually, one of the simplest ways to do that is to take take the key kind of five or six colours and then just eliminate one, one that you really don't like. And for me, most of the time, it's something I often find the hardest to place is a pure red. And so if I take that out of my palette, most other things will sit together pretty comfortably. And so if you then try and discipline yourself to sort of buy within that palette, the whole garden has that you know, thing I constantly bang on about, which is just the unity or continuity. And, you know, if you look at the best, the best gardens at Chelsea Flower Show, you know, all be them a, a fantasy garden, but the things that always work best are where there are uh, notes of different tones that pick up and repeat through the garden. So it doesn't have to be exactly the same, you know, burgundy, but actually if there's a slightly lighter burgundy further back into the garden that just does a nod to, or, you know, the foliage of this particular plant that sits behind your burgundy flowered penstem and just has some notes of burgundy on the underside of the leaf, just sort of those little subtle relationships suddenly bind the, behind the whole thing together. And I, you talk about having a colour scheme. I think often colour schemes in gardens can change through the course of the year a bit. And in autumn, certainly, that's when you get a lot of the reds and the burgundies that you mentioned coming through. But autumn colour can be quite difficult to achieve in a small garden, you know, the sort of big deciduous trees and, and berries. What are your or tips for creating a garden in a small space that still looks good in autumn? I would probably plump for some of the... Some of the smaller trees that can have sort of, so I think the rowans can be incredibly good value, mountain ash. They tend to be quite light canopied. They're great for wildlife. They have sort of multiple seasons of interest because, of course, you get the, the, the spring blooms, masses of white flowers, and great for the, the pollinators at that time of year. But then going into autumn, you have relatively long-lasting autumn colour, so about a month of uh, you know interesting foliage change. But then you've got the berries, and in, in my experience, they tend to be one of the last things that the birds eat and there are many many different cultivars that you can go for but there's some beautiful white forms which can look incredible against blue winter skies there are, there are pink form berries and red so that's a great way of sort of you know getting getting high value and a plant that I've mentioned before on this podcast but uh, it's just uh, it's too good not to mention again is Nandina domestica because it's it's quite special and not many plants are able to do this in as much as it's evergreen but it also takes on a proportion of, uh, of autumn color and I think that that brings sort of great value to it. And actually, another another plant that's becoming increasingly popular is the Cape jasmine, which is uh, Trachylospermum jasminoides. 
And for such a sort of an exotic, sweetly scented climate, actually it's tough as old boots. And it does that magic thing that it, it takes on autumn colour um, despite being evergreen. So it will lose a small proportion of its leaves to, to autumn colour. But you get those flashes of red and yellow and orange. Whereas if you go for something, you know, a plant I love is Euonymus alatus. It's that kind of uh, about a metre by metre round uh, corky barked um, Euonymus. And it arguably is the reddest of all reds in the uh, in the autumn but it does that for precisely 10 days and then all the leaves drop off and it looks pretty dull for the rest of the whole year so i think always worth going for something that's got again you know other other layers of interest there's a cotoniaster this would be for sort of slightly bigger gardens but uh, two different forms one called lacteus and one called frigidus and both of them have that magical quality of having the you know the white spring flowers uh, berries through the through the year but they also do that that magic thing of being evergreen but taking on a proportion of awesome colour. And so if you can get that kind of maximum value out of one plant, I think those are the sort of things to go for. Absolutely. In a small garden, plants really need to earn their keep and yeah. look good uh, for as long as possible. Are there any other plants that are, are really good for that, looking good for, for a really long time of year? I think as well. I mean, I've been focusing on more more shrubby plants, but actually there's a few kind of herbaceous species that can, can deliver the goods on that front. And something I always, always use in gardens is what was formerly called uh, sedum. It's now um, heliotelephium. We still call them border sedums because no one can pronounce heliotelephium. <laughs> <laughs> I had to do it on TV recently and I said, I'd quickly whispered to the researcher, how does Carol say it? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, if that's how Carol does it, I'll do it, uh, I'll do it that way. I mean, the, the, the good news, Cat, is they're nearly done with all these plant name changes, oh, aren't they? And you goodness. know what's happening, right? It was just historically all, all plants were grouped together based on their floral structure and they're now regrouping everything based on its DNA. So all of the monocots are done. No more bulbs are going to change. It's just just a few things. But anyway, to return to the point, the um, heliotelephium or sedums or sometimes called ice plant, I think are amazing because they're nearly always doing something. So in spring, you've got that fantastic flush of, uh, of early early foliage. You can, of course, Chelsea chop them. So uh, that's, of course, the technique where you sort of cut back. It works for quite a lot of different herbaceous species, cut them back by about half in the last week of May when Chelsea Flower Show is happening. And what that does is to make the plant flower later, potentially for longer, with more but sort of smaller smaller blooms. But yeah, so foliage in early spring, of course, I think they're as beautiful when they're in bud as when they're in flower. So they'll put up those sort of platy floral structures and see they're in that lovely kind of fresh, vibrant lime green. Then you move into into midsummer and depending on which cultivar you've gone for, it's sort of either burgundies, pinks, whites or, or reds. So still doing something interesting. Moving into autumn, of course, you then start to lose the foliage, but you get the the structure of the flowers, which sits, you know, well into into winter. And I think they can look incredibly cute, especially when they get little like a bubble hat domed piece of snow on top of them. And so if you've got them against something something pale, we were talking about pittosporums earlier, if you've got that sort of dark woodsy brown of the sedum floral structure against something paler, it can look can look really pretty. And then, of course, if you get the, the ideal hoarfrosts and cobwebs and all those lovely things, they really stand out. But even at that point of year, if you look at them closely at the base, they've still got what look like a little series of baby chicks sat at the bottom, which is next year's growth, ready to go. And so it's a nearly nonstop plant. It's kind of, it's delivering value nearly the whole time. And you mentioned it stands well over winter. Choosing summer flowering plants that you know have attractive seed heads and that sort of thing will stand well over winter. What are your favourite plants that 
have fantastic summer flowers, but then will give good structure over winter, good seed heads. Or yeah, there's there's all sorts of things. I mean, people often often go for grasses to do that, and you have to be a little bit careful because some of the, some of the grasses that you think are going to be great end up being disastrous. So, for example, Calamagrostis, nearly all of them break up at the base uh, at just the wrong moment, and they blow all over the garden and look like straw. Whereas Miscanthus hold on beautifully, and there's particular Miscanthus I love called Napolensis. Uh, and so it's a straight species, which is always a good sign when you're, when you're buying plants. It generally tends to mean they're going to be stronger, more resilient to, to pest and disease. And what's lovely about this particular miscanthus, most of them hold those plumed seed heads through winter and they're sort of a silver grey. What's lovely about Miscanthus napolensis is it's gold and they're tassels of gold and they hold that colour through the through the winter. So I think that, that provides great value. And then thinking about other herbaceous plants, the Flomus, I think it's Russelliana or, or Tuberosa, several of those species are great. They give you a relatively long run of flower in the summer, so sort of six weeks to two months of yellow or pink flowers, depending which which form you go for. But then in the winter, you have these, these stems, which I think are just about the most dramatic and they're, they're almost indestructible so they're not going to get bashed around by the wind but what they what they look like is sort of upright dark stems with a series of almost button shaped flat sections that that uh, ascend up the stem and so number one they're great because things like uh, lacewings and the like can hibernate in them they do also release a small amount of seed so they're, they're bird food they tend to be at about kind of a meter to a meter and a half tall so they're quite a substantial structure to sit there through the winter they make a beautiful silhouette. They look fabulous backlit. They look brilliant, obviously covered in hoarfrost and all of that. And really, they're just completely indestructible. So it's only at the point that you decide to to cut them down that they that they disappear. And I think actually pairing those up with grasses that sustain through winter gives you that really nice kind of contrast of the you know the very distinct upright of the miscanthus, but then the sort of horizontals of these uh, these floral structures up the stem and. Um, I think that gives you a nice, nice strong look for winter. And you mentioned some of the the wildlife benefits of of leaving plants to stand over winter. Are there any risks to leaving perennials standing over winter in terms of pests and diseases overwintering? Gosh, I would say more so more so in a glass house than outdoors. I mean, this year I've even sort of left some annuals that I would have naturally uh, naturally torn out and thrown away. So I grew a whole load of uh, helianthus of the more sort of, dare I say, more sophisticated sunflowers, the, the sort of shorter, smaller-headed ones, and left them in the garden. And what was lovely, by kind of early December, I had one wren that had realised this is the garden where the good stuff is. And so she came in every day and was uh, was feeding on the uh, on the sunflowers. But yeah, in terms of risk, I can't say off the top of my head I'm particularly particularly aware. I mean, for most plants, of course, you know, naturally growing in the wild, there's nobody coming along and cutting them down. And so for most things, actually to leave a bit of structure over winter isn't a problem as long as they're not. I guess an issue might come with things like dahlias or like if they sort of rot and sit on top of themselves or on top of their tubers and then start to kind of drop into the uh, into the soil. But I think for the bulk of herbaceous, just, just leaving a bit of structure there can only be helpful. And, you know, things like phygelius or penstemons, actually there's a huge advantage to leaving this stems there because it allows the effectively the top plant that uh, part of the plant protects the rest and so it can get frosted but it's not going to mess up the the rest of the plant and you you mentioned dahlias and sunflowers and they have fantastic summer flowers and they're fairly long lasting but you know there are others that are just real flash in the pans what are some of your favorite 
summer flowering plants that flower for just months and months and months. So a plant I regularly cite, I think, gets gets overlooked. I, mean, I think most people know geranium roseanne, which is that fantastic plant. I think it won the RHS plant of the millennium a few years back. If anybody doesn't know it, it's uh, blue-flowered, it's got a white centre, and then it's got sort of ready burgundy venation through it. And its parentage, its breeding, is from the Wallichianum group of geraniums. What people don't know is it's got a famous sibling. And um, it came out of the same sort of batch of, uh, of breeding. It's got a slightly different look to it. It's got the same quality, so it will flower for six, seven months very, very easily. But it's, a, I guess it's a pinky white with a slightly deeper venation through it. So it's called lilac ice. And essentially, it does everything that Roseanne does, but uh, avoids perhaps arguably now the ubiquity of, uh, of Roseanne. Um, and there's also another slightly smaller geranium called Dillis, which again does about that same window. So it's kind of seven, eight months of flowering. So just a good ground cover, ground cover geranium. There are so many things I could choose here, but um, I'm particularly, particularly in love at the moment with the Australian bred salvias. So uh, Embers Glow, Wendy's Wish, and that um, that set of plants. They're just such good value. They are they are tender, so there's something you'd need to uh, propagate from semi-ripe cuttings, which you can find all about in a back issue of Gardener's World by um, Nick Bailey. But uh, yeah, just semi-ripe cuttings at the back end of the of the season. But they will go. They'll easily be in, in blown by sort of last week of May, first week of June. And of course, they'll run all the way through to the frosts in November. And they're sort of prolific flowering. And what I noticed from them last year, and I don't know if this is to do with the breeding, the selection, whether they were bred for the Australian market, but in spite of the crazy heat that happened in 2022, these these new salvias actually seem to tolerate it extremely well and uh, and you know just keep blooming uh, all the way through. And I think as well, there's some annuals that can provide really good value. And I tend to sort of get most obsessed about the big annuals, so not your typical lobelias or antirrhinums. I like something that really gets sort of massive in a year. So cleomies are a lovely thing, and they um, they take about 90 days from seed to flower, so there's something you'd ideally sort of sow, I guess, in late February time to get them going. And what's interesting about the way they bloom is that you get the initial kind of apical growth that gives you that dome of and there are uh, sort of cherry red and violet and white forms of it. And basically it looks like a um, almost like a hydrangea head with a whole series of spider legs coming out of it. It's the most exotic looking thing. And so you get that apical dome, that initial flower. And then when that goes off, it suddenly triggers all the shoots below it. So it then starts to send up all these side shoots, which then turns into a really kind of bulky plant. And so it means, that, again, you've got sort of four or five months of, of colour from it. And what I found interestingly is most of them tend to come true from their own seeds. With a lot of cultivars, they can throw up all sorts of all sorts of variables. But actually with the, with the Cleomies, you can collect the seed at the end of the, the year, let them just dry down, you know, in a paper bag or sat in the sat in the glass house. And then if you can get them into the into the fridge, just a little bag of silica, you know, the stuff that comes if you buy binoculars or, uh, or cameras or whatever you can buy it online, just put a bag of that in to keep everything dry. And then actually you can you can do your sowing the following year, as I say, nice and early, and that will give you those Cleomies with a, a big run of colour. And then finally, finally, Penstemons are something again. I just can't help, can't help using them again because that incredible, incredible range of colours. So I think you can say with penstemons, other than blue, any colour you can think of, you can uh, you can get hold of. They're a 
many sort of classics that have been grown for forever. So things like Sour Grapes or Alice Hindley or Garnet are all really popular. And there's something interesting that's arrived in the in the last few years. Is a it's a compact regila. I don't know if you've come a, come across it, Kat, but it's it's quite different from the, you know, the classics that people grow. So Bristol Ruby is the is the big one, or uh, Florida is the variegated one with pale pink. These newly bred ones. I mean, they they do just what they what it says on the on the tin. So it's called All Summer Red. This this new one, and it literally flowers for for six months. And um, I don't know what the breeding is and how they've done that with regila, but it's also a much smaller plant. So it's about eighteen inches high. Forms a very nice dome. It's great for a pot and so great kind of specimen plants good form to them and then a good six months of, of flower so really in the keep and is there anything that the gardeners need to do to keep these plants flowering is it as simple as remembering to water them and remembering to feed them yeah, I mean anything that's that's prolific in bloom is obviously going to be fairly heavy in terms of its uh, its nutrient consumption. So, I always go back and say the the same thing that we all think about NPK, the nitrogen, phosphate, and uh, and potassium. But actually, plants are using a lot more than that. You know, so for example, all plants need copper to grow, and it's something they can burn out from the soil pretty quickly. So supplementary feeds, uh, seaweed feeds and the like, but also looking for organic foods that carry some of those those sort of more minor nutrients, the trace elements, will really help to keep things, uh, you know, flowering in the in the long term. Potassium, of course, is, is key for flowering, but actually those other lesser nutrients are really important too. And once you've got your plants all sorted, are there ways that you can use your hard landscaping or other structures to, to give your garden year-round interest? Yeah, I mean, I think they have to be have to be a little careful in the British climate and British light to sort of start using, you know, whether you're painting crazy colours on your fence or, or whatever, it can look a little bit strange. I think you can get away with it in the in the Mediterranean. But I think we can sort of start pushing towards some of those more uh, more exciting colours. So, of course, back in the uh, Alan Titchmarsh era of Gardener's World and, uh, Ground, and Ground Force, Force, everything was in that, that kind of blue, like every piece of deck in the country was that. And, and actually that can look quite cold in the winter so a slightly kind of deeper or more azure blue for you know for fence panels or whatever can work pretty pretty well I mean, I always, always say water is, is vital in the garden and that's, that's a great way of kind of keeping interest going just to have that little bit of movement in winter to catch your eye. Obviously, you'll get birds starting to come and make make use of it, a little bit of, uh, little bit of sound as well. So I think that's, um, that's useful. Another thing I like to uh, cheekily sneak into gardens and always do in my own, sorry if this is a little bit disco, but uh, I love to sneak in a mirable where possible. It's um, it's not the most obvious thing to see in a garden, but you can get them very inexpensively on online now. And uh, they don't have to be powered. They can literally just sort of move around in the wind. But... Um, that suddenly, even on a you know on a relatively still winter's day, just to have that little bit of sparkle, that little bit of animation in the garden, particularly if they're kind of moving around in the wind, just suddenly gives you that extra extra little bit of light. Does does that count as hard landscape, Kat? I think that definitely yeah. does. And I mean, that's a great tip for taking advantage of the of the light being so different in winter. Do you try and factor that in when you're positioning things like seating areas? Do you do you have a, a summer seating area and a winter seating area if you have the space? Yeah, very very much so. I mean, I'm, I'm looking out for my own my own garden now, and I always it's one of the first things I do with, with clients is to look at the look at the sun track. 
But of course, what's so easy to forget is the sun is so much lower in the winter. So what you're sort of counting on in, in summer for you know light to be able to strike through, the sun might be in the same position, but it's way lower in the sky. So it is really worth looking at where it kind of, um, you know, where it sits. And I mean, talking about that as well, it's, it's, it's seriously worth sort of positioning winter flowering plants so they can be backlit you can add that extra level of, of illumination so something like um, Shimonanthus praecox which is uh, which is winter sweet has an almost sort of translucent sort of yellowy flower you can grow it as a wool shrub but actually if you grow it so it either gets the, the morning or evening sun directly behind it that low sun in winter suddenly it illuminates and it looks like a you know a low level Christmas tree because there's that wonderful glow through all the all the flowers and so you can take advantage really of the sort of relative scant light at that time of year by by placing plants in the right right position. And Chimonanthus obviously has that wonderful scent as oh, well. Yeah, yeah. And quite a lot of winter flowering plants have have quite small flowers but amazing scent. Is is that perhaps part of it that we just have to change our expectations of of what looks good in a garden in order to have a, a garden that is interesting to us in winter? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's also about kind of getting out and seeing what's what's possible. So I had a, a gardening friend from Norway come over in January, February time, and we went across to Anglesey Abbey, and I think that's one of the best kind of winter gardens. And it, you know, you need a little bit of space to be able to do it well, but where they've got sort of, you know, things like some of the winter flowering viburnums, viburnum farii or viburnum bodnotensi dawn, if, if you've got the space to put five of those together, you've suddenly got this kind of mass of pink in the depths of winter, and it, it gets, um, yeah, it gets really sort of exciting and interesting. But as well, I think, as you say, it, it's about sort of appreciating those refinements of winter. And so if you've got a big space, grow something like, um, you know, Daphne, Jacqueline, Postil, that's that's a fantastic thing, and it has relatively sort of full clusters of, you know, very, very soapy-scented flowers. But equally, you can go for something like the, the sort of quarter-sized version of that, the other species, which is Daphne adora or adora variegata. So you've got the same amount of scent, slightly more leaves, but on a much more sort of domed, compacted, uh, compact plant. And yes, perhaps that's half the key, is just finding ways to get out into the garden so you're actually closer to it and can then appreciate it more. Are there, are there any key tasks that you like to do specifically in winter just to get yourself out there and kind of in the garden again? Well, I think, and I remember a, a trustee at the the Physic Garden saying this to me, said, um, Nick, it doesn't matter how dreadful the garden looks, as long as you've got sharp cut edges, nobody will notice. And it's it's kind of true, folks. If you do those little bits of tidying up, you know, if you half moon the edges of your lawn and kind of keep them clipped through winter, everything else might be sort of disastrous around it, but it just sort of adds that, that element of sort of formality and sharpness. And actually kind of, you know, going into autumn or just coming out of winter. I'm not a huge fan of lawns, but that is a good window to really kind of look after your look after your turf. So whether that's spiking it, that tends to be the most common problem for lawns is we're all running around on them and uh, playing twister and all of those things and compact the, compact the ground underneath. And so you start to get, you know, slightly chlorotic and unhealthy looking grass. So if you can hollow tine, get air into there, which then allows water and nutrition, you can sort of, and of course you're not using the turf so much through winter. So it's 
it's a really good recovery time. So with a bit of help from uh, from you, it can make a can make a difference. And I just think it's a great planning time as well. You know, you've got those uh, uh, those wintry days where you sit in the armchair and flick through your copy of Gardener's World magazine. Other magazines are available apparently, or um, you know, just getting out into the garden and having the having the time. You know, I think the one of the ironies for gardeners is we create these spaces to relax in. And I, I don't know if the same happens to you, Cap. But if I'm in my own garden, I'm constantly like, oh that needs oh that needs doing oh I must move that I must do that. Whereas in winter, I think you've just got a bit more license to sort of sit back and kind of go, okay, well that structure kind of worked all right, but maybe come spring I'll split this herbaceous plant and run it through this particular area to kind of link it all together. So I think it's that sort of slower observation time that you can you can do your planning. And would you ever advocate including things like fire pits or dare I say it, patio heaters or you know things to create windbreaks just to make that garden space a bit more appealing in, in even if not in winter but in, in the cooler months of the year before it gets really cold? Yeah, I'd say um, throw in a New Zealand hot tub. That's the, um, <laughs> that's the way to go. Yeah, the New, Zealand, the New Zealand hot tubs, you know, they're a slightly different thing. They're basically a cast iron bath with a bonfire underneath. I mean, they're, they're great. It's a cauldron. Um, yeah, exactly. Of course, they've become hugely popular, haven't they, hot tubs in the, in the last few years? And I lifted up a cover on one in a client's garden recently, and the chlorine that poured out, and I'm not sure I'd ever want to be in there, but I don't know if you can run them on uh, on salt rather than chlorine. But, um, but yeah, I think yeah, you're absolutely right, just creating a, an appealing something. And, um, I mean, I'm absolutely anti-patio heaters at any level. I just can't, I can't subscribe to that idea. But a fire pit is a lovely thing and there's something quite quite romantic what's the nordic idea is it hugger hugger of sort of you know wrapping up in some uh, you know wolf furs or whatever one wears these days and uh, blankets and having a hot chocolate by the fire outside and i think it's just a lovely way of kind of remembering that the world's still out there and you don't just have to sit watching uh, you know reruns of taggart there's uh, there's other things going on out in the world and do you have a favorite time of year in the garden and why? I think it's probably around Chelsea week because that always strikes me as the most thrilling time of year because things are moving so fast at that point. There's just so much potential and things are kind of churning and turning over so quickly. I remember when, when I did my, my garden in 2016, we, at great expense, we bought, this, bought in this and had grown on this fabulous uh, loop, and I'm sure you know, called Masterpiece. And uh, if you don't know, guys, it's kind of a burgundy blue, beautiful, beautiful combination. I think it's one of the uh, one of the best best lupins out there. And so they arrived on on site about kind of I don't know, it was about two weeks before judging, and they were just green spikes. And I was like, oh no, we've paid a fortune to have these pushed on, and this is hopeless. And what I'd kind of in my blind panic putting together a Chelsea garden forgot is that these things are moving so quickly. So by the time we hit Judgment Day, there was kind of, you know, it really was Judgment Day as well. Uh, it really was like a 12-inch spike of this deep colour, and that had happened just in those in those two weeks. So yeah, it's that real kind of urgency, that acceleration. And I always think it's... I think it's exciting the way plants have evolved. You know, bluebells specifically do it because they most commonly grow under beech wood. Beech, of course, is the most dense canopy cover of any native tree in the UK. So the bluebells are like, we have got to flower, get the pollinators in, get ourselves pollinated before the canopy closes uh, ahead of us. So it's that that urgency which I find find really exciting. But I think I could I could probably extol the virtues of every season for all sorts of things. But yeah, there's just something lovely lovely about that. What about you? I think. Yeah, June for me, it's 
early June when it's, you know, it's warm, fairly reliably warm, but before it gets too hot. So, you know, there's enough in flower. My garden tends to get going a bit late in the year, but by June it's it's really full and full of colour and but before everything starts getting a bit dried and frazzled out through yeah. lack, of, lack of water. If you had to look at just one plant for a whole year, all year round, what one plant would it be? Actually, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. I've got uh, a particular rose in several containers at the moment. It's, uh, it's one called Emma Hamilton. And I love it for the flower. I love it for the, the form. It's kind of a pale mid-peach, very ruffled, kind of cupped, cupped flower. It has extraordinary scent. It's got notes of elderflower in it, and so literally elderflower champagne, which make it really special, and then it's got a fruity notes as well. But what's so lovely about it is its foliage, when it's in kind of active growth stage, is just so beautifully marked, so you're not just kind of counting on those flowers and the fabulous scent. Actually, the foliage on its own, uh, and being an English rose, you sort of you know, do several prunes on it during the year where you, you know, they call it a, a prune, but basically it's sort of deep deadheading. And a lot of roses can look a bit miserable when you do that. But this, I just love the kind of purpley burnished burgundy tones against the green. And I've got it uh, in a container coming up against a load of tulipa ballerina, which just looks, looks beautiful. Those kind of burgundies and deep oranges together. So, yeah, I mean, I could, I could probably come up with a, a thousand plants that I could look at forever. But, um, but yeah, I think that's 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 a great one for yeah for for year round, nearly year round interest. And if you could only pick one plant for winter interest, what would it be? I think actually one of the the most dramatic, most reliable, easy to grow, easy win. You can have it in a container, you can have it in the ground, you can have it on mass. Is one of the one of the dwarfing cornus, the one called Midwinter Fire. It's also another one called I think it's Annie's Red uh, or Annie's Orange that's appeared in the last few few years. That just looks fantastic. It's sort of genuinely vibrant colour, particularly if you've got it against sort of darker darker evergreens. It's um, it really sort of keeps the interest going. And actually, something I always advise people to do. You know, the, the standard advice is always to sort of hard prune those those corners in kind of February or March each year. Uh, and with the big ones, if you let them go beyond a year, they start losing all their all their colour. However, with the smaller ones like Midwinter Fire and Nanny's Red. You can let them go for two years. And so basically you get a plant that's twice the size with twice the amount of colour for half the effort. There we are. No more February pruning needed. (laughs) Indeed. Thanks for listening to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts and never miss an episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell others about it and rate us in your podcast provider app.